Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. You got it. You got to go to uh, B&M, Beckham's B&M there uh, over in Lyndhurst. Incredible food, incredible folks over there. Um, and someone's going to get a chance to go uh, on us. So we're going to, uh, if everyone got a ticket, if you didn't get a ticket, it might be too late. I don't know. But I'm going to ask for the number to be put up on the big screen so we can all see who is going to, there it is, 355-163. You are a winner. Uh, find someone in the back after worship and they will get you, uh, get, what's that? At the connect table. Go to the connect table. I, I had just finished telling Chip, oh yeah, I know what we're doing. I didn't know. Go to the connect table. Go to the connect table after worship. You'll get your gift certificate and, uh, and oh, oh, use it. Use it well. Use it well. Okay, as Chip and the video and other folks have said, we're continuing with diners, dives, and drive-ins, the meals of Jesus. Uh, it's so, so amazing how many times Jesus sat down and ate a meal with folks, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in people's houses, sometimes in large groups, big picnics out on the countryside, uh, sometimes with folks he knew well and knew him well, some with not so much. Uh, but so much of Jesus' ministry and teaching happened around the table. We're looking at this story. That, uh, that Chip read earlier um, at the Pharisee's house. Jesus having a meal at a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisees here, you know, this is not the first time. I, wanna, I need to set the stage. Um, and, and before I even get into the details of the stage, I want to give you kind of the overall theme of what I see as uh, this passage is about. It's about seeing, I think, and, and learning to see. And you might think, well, why do we need to learn to see? We see. Either you see or you don't see. You might need glasses. You might, uh, you know, you might have to squint, but you either see or you don't see. You, need to, you don't need to learn to see. Not true. I needed to learn to see. You're probably probably thinking, Blevins, that's you. You are, you know, you have, you need things. You need things and you need to, I needed to learn to see. I think we all need to learn to see. I learned to see, uh, began to learn to see from my art teacher. I took private art lessons when I was in junior high and high school. Mrs. Brim, she was phenomenal. I remember my very first lesson. Uh, uh, I was young and dumb and thought I knew what I was doing and was trying to tell the teacher, you know, I did the same thing in seminary, so I didn't learn real fast. Um, so I sat down, and the picture she had for me to paint was a snowscape. And to paint the snow, I just got a big blob of white paint on my brush. And Mrs. Brim said, no, no, what are you doing? I said, I'm painting the snow. And she said, the snow's not white. And I'm like, I've got to be in the wrong art class here. Everybody knows snow is white. And we are, I'm arguing with the teacher. This was me, still is me. And arguing with the teacher about whether snow is white. And finally she did what she so often did in the years that I was taking lessons from her. She said, Scott, get up. And I got up and she sat down and she painted a little for me to see. And I thought, oh, snow isn't white. It's not. 
It's not snow. There's shades of gray and blue, depending on the lighting outside. There might be even some shades of red and yellow in there, but snow isn't white. And if you're thinking right now, Blevins, now you know, we know you're really crazy because I know snow is white. Check me on this, on your drive home. Look at the snow, and I'm not talking about the dirty snow with road grime on it. Look back off the road, into the yards, into the streets where the snow is pristine, and you will see that the vast majority of the snow that you see is not white. The problem is, the problem was for me that I'd always been told snow is white. Snow is white. That's what, you know, you know snow is white. it's, It's white. You hear that. Snow is white. And so when I looked at that picture, I didn't see what was there. I didn't see the picture. I didn't see the shades of colors. I saw what I expected to see. I saw what I thought I was going to see. I saw a category. The category was snow, and I filled in the blank with the color white. This parable, this story, it's not a parable, there's a parable in it, but this story is about seeing. And one of the first people we see in this story is the Pharisee. Um, and Luke even introduces him in this same non-seeing way as a category, not by name. We don't get his name until later. That's important. He's introduced as a Pharisee. We've seen Pharisees already in the gospel of Luke. And when the Pharisees show up around Jesus, they're, 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 they're doing screwy things. Jesus, when he's having dinner at Levi's house, the Pharisees are there criticizing and judging, telling the disciples, what are y'all doing eating with these tax collectors and sinners? How come you're not washing your hands? How come you're not following the rules? We see the Pharisees at the synagogue with Jesus before this. Synagogue was their version of weekly church. They would go for teaching and, and, and worship. And, uh, and, and there was a man there with a crippled hand. And the Pharisees were waiting and watching to see if Jesus would heal that man on the Sabbath, violate the Sabbath rules to heal someone. If you're going to heal him, just wait till the next day. What's one more day going to cost you? Would Jesus break the rules? And now we see the Pharisees at, 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 uh, at the table. A Pharisee has, in fact, invited Jesus to his house for dinner. What's he, what's he invited Jesus there for? Not to see him. Not to see him. The Pharisees didn't see They examined and they evaluated. This was Jesus' job interview from the Pharisees' perspective. Will we endorse you as prophet and messiah? You got to show us your stuff here, Jesus. And Jesus is failing right off the bat. He's failing the examination right off the bat. A woman comes in. We'll get into the details later, but we'll suffice it to say she crashes the party. She wasn't invited. She starts doing all sorts of socially inappropriate things, including touching Jesus. And we're told by the narrator first that she is a sinner. And then the Pharisee sees her and he does his evaluation thing. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known. So if this man, this is the evaluation part. This is the test Jesus is failing. He's not, he's not showing the spiritually heightened perceptive powers of a prophet. Because if he were, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. That word for sinner there has some subtle nuance of meaning that Luke uses here. It's not identifying specific sins. It really has that sense of she's in this group that we know to be sinful. She is in this category of sinner. She's the sort of person that we know is sinful. 
So the Pharisee is evaluating Jesus and he's evaluating the woman. He's examining them. He's not seeing them. And they don't measure up. The woman's a sinner. She shouldn't even be there. She wasn't invited. And Jesus clearly is not, he's not even a prophet, much less the Messiah, if he's going to let this sinful woman touch him in public like this. All right? So Jesus is failing the examination. I got to pause here. And it's important. It's easy to judge and condemn the Pharisees. It really is. Um, they, they, they do so many knuckleheaded things in the scripture. And, and it's easy for me to forget how much of a Pharisee that I am. And so I got to stop here and remind myself that, that if I'm in anybody's shoes in this story, it's probably the Pharisees' shoes. And I got to be aware of that in my own life. Maybe you struggle with this sort of thing too. So I need to tell you about a time. I want to tell you about a time when I was really being the Pharisee in a very, very negative way where I was not seeing someone because I just put them in a category. This goes back to my college days. I went to Miami University. I was on the speech team there. We called it the forensics program. When they first told me you should be in the forensics program, I was like, I don't want to do anything with dead people. And they were like, it's not that. And it's speech. Why? I don't know. I never did figure that out. You can look it up. I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. I was on there, and we had a good team. We were highly competitive, generally in the top 15, top 10 teams in the nation. Uh, we were the only one of the few teams in that uh, functioning at that high level that didn't offer scholarships. One of the teams that did offer scholarships was Bradley University. Um, they dominated everyone. They were the evil empire of intercollegiate speech competitions uh, back in the day. And one of their best competitors was a man by the name of Kenny. I'll just use his first name. And and he graduated, and then he came to Miami in my sophomore year, I believe. And, and he was there as a coach. He was a grad student, and he was a coach. Part of his graduate student was to be a coach for our speech team that year. And, and I spent a year with Kenny. He coached me in my events. He was a very, very skilled competitor and a very good coach. Uh, we traveled together. We were in, in, on vans for hours at a time together. We went tournaments, to, tournaments together. We were in hotels together because we, we would do overnight trips uh, for the tournaments. And, and I spent the whole year and never saw Kenny because Kenny was in a category for me. Kenny was the first openly gay man I had ever met. I found out later I had known some gay individuals, but they were in the closet when I knew them before that. But at uh, 20, 19, 20 years old in college was the first openly gay person I ever met. And my upbringing, that put Kenny in a category. He was, that was one of those categories I was taught that those sorts of folks are sinners. And that's really all you need to know about them. It's really all you need to know. Now, I'd been given the teaching uh, very loudly, very directly, and explicitly, verbally, that we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But implicitly and just as clearly and even more strongly, I was taught directly and indirectly that some folks and some sins are worse than others. And, and I was taught that homosexuality was a sin, and not only a sin, but it was worse than the others. And so Kenny was in a category. And I never saw him. I don't believe any of that anymore, by the way, just so you know. We can talk about the details of that later. Hit me up online, email, text, whatever. I don't have time to go into what changed my thinking on all of that. But part of it is this passage we're getting at. We'll get to that later. 
but I didn't see Kenny. I spent a year with him, and I didn't know him any better at the end of the year than I did at the beginning of the year. Because Kenny wasn't a person. I didn't see him. I didn't need to know him. I knew about him and those kinds of people. And he was in a box. I'm a Pharisee. Maybe you are too. Maybe you've got categories of people that when you hear they're in that category, whether it's a political category or a national category or an ethnic category or a racial category or a sexual orientation category or whatever your categories are, that you're like, oh, yeah, those folks, those folks, you know, you know how ex-cons are. Those folks, you know how Republicans are, you know how Democrats are, you know how, you know how white folks are, you know how black folks, you know. I don't know what your categories are, but if you're sitting in this room and you're alive, you've probably got them. And, and once we see someone in that, once we know someone's in that category or we put them in that category, we stop seeing them. And that's what the Pharisees did. They didn't see. They couldn't see Jesus as the Son of God because he didn't fit their category. He didn't fit their category. This is where Jesus enters the story in a big way. Because Jesus saw people. He saw the Pharisee. It's from the mouth of Jesus that we first learn that this Pharisee isn't just a Pharisee. He's a person. He has a name. Jesus spoke up and said to him, to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. He called him by name. He called him by name. You know, when Jesus ate at Levi's house with with all of the other tax collectors and sinful folks there, Jesus, by eating at his house, was saying, these are my folks. I belong with these people. They belong with me. It's the same thing when he went to Simon's house. Completely different group of people. But Jesus didn't say, well, I'll eat with the sinners, but I'm not eating with those religious folks. He went, he ate in Simon's house. And he didn't treat Simon as a category. He saw Simon as a person. He dealt with him as a person. Now, he did not deal with him gently, as gently as he could. But given the situation, that wasn't very gentle. We'll get to that a little bit later. But he saw Simon. He called him by name. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he told Simon that parable that Chip read earlier. A creditor had two debtors. Uh, One owed him 500 denarius, uh, the other 50. It's a lot of money either way. A denarius was a day's wages, so 500 days wages or 50 days wages. Either way you go, you're talking about a substantial debt that's owed. Both were forgiven. Who loved the man, the creditor more? And Simon answers, well, the one that was forgiven more, I suppose. And Jesus said, yeah. You got the answer right. You, Simon, passed the test so far. You got it right. But the Bible says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible also says that Jesus is the Word of God. Ergo, ipso facto, I like saying that, Jesus is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the joints and marrow, and it's about to get sharp for Simon. Because Jesus didn't just see Simon. Jesus saw the woman. He saw the woman. He said to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? 
Everyone in the room would have been going, she's the only thing any of us have been looking at, Jesus, for the past 20 minutes. I don't know what's going on with you. She was doing so many things wrong, breaking so many rules. She came uninvited into someone's house. She was not on the dinner invitation. She came in as a woman. Maybe it was a house full of men. We don't know, but she was there touching a man who was not her husband in public. All three of those things. Two, three, what? They're all wrong. Hugely inappropriate. Violated all sorts of social boundaries. She's creating a ruckus, being like super emotional. She's crying. Her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. She's da- Okay, so this always confused me. It said she was behind him uh, weeping and her tears fell on Jesus' feet and, and she washed his feet with her tears and dry, anointed them and dried them with her hair. How can he do that while he's sitting at the table? Because when you're at the table, your feet are in front of you and she's behind him. It wasn't like that. They ate differently than we did. Uh, they reclined. The tables were low. They were way down. They reclined on the floor with their feet extended out behind them. That's how she could be behind him and crying on his feet and touching his feet, and kissing his feet. My gosh, what's this woman doing? Well, you don't expect that from someone like her. And some people might be saying, even from someone like her, this is outrageous. But Jesus wasn't playing that game. He saw the woman. And this is where it starts to get real for Simon in a painful way and real for the woman in a beautiful way. And Jesus lays it out. I entered your house. He's saying this to Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That's the socially appropriate, polite thing to do. You honor your guest by providing water for them to wash the dust of the road off their feet. And better yet, how you or someone in your house wash their feet for them. So Simon, you didn't do that, but she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. The socially appropriate, respectful way to greet someone and honor someone. They didn't do that for Jesus. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, the socially appropriate, acceptable way to honor a guest in this situation, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven, love little. The implication, of course, for Simon being that you've had very little that's been forgiven. This cuts for Simon. But this point of this passage and this Luke sharing this account is not so we can double down on judging Pharisees. It's so we can see the woman. So we can see the woman. You see, Luke, Luke wants us to see Jesus for sure. Luke wants us to see Jesus to see how different he is from the religious folks of his day and different he is from the political rulers of his day and any day and the religious folks of any day, how different he is from from business people and from from regular sinners and polite sinners and, and, and wear it all on your shirt sleeve sinners, that Jesus is different from all of us. He sees into our hearts, but he still sits down at the table with us. He knows where we've been and what we've done, but he still touches us and lets us touch him. 
And Luke wants us to see that. But while we're looking at Jesus in this passage, what Jesus wants us to see is the woman. He wants us to see the woman. And he wants us to see her like he sees her. You see, everyone in that room, all they saw was a horrible amount of hugely inappropriate, socially inappropriate behavior. Everything that was wrong with her. The Pharisees, they saw the rude, socially inappropriate behavior of a sinful woman. All of these wrong things. Jesus saw extravagant acts of love and hospitality by a woman whom God had forgiven. You see, when he looked at her, he didn't see she's one of those kind of people. When he saw her behavior, he didn't see, man, can't this woman learn how to act in public? He said, my God, she's been forgiven. This is love. This is, this is overflowing. I don't care who sees it or hears about it or knows about it. I'm going to pour out my love and my gratitude on this man who is the source of my forgiveness. This is beautiful. This is worship, folks, that's happening at the Pharisee's house at the table. And Jesus is the only one who recognized it. Worship is what she was doing. And Jesus wants us to see that. Because he wants his followers to see past the categories. Question is, how do you see Jesus? It's the first question. I got two. How do you see Jesus? Are you seeing Jesus like the Pharisees? Are you testing him out? And that's okay. If you're in this room and you're testing Jesus out, you know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just give me a taste. Give me a try. Check me out. If you're there, that's okay. If you're still there 10 years from now, you need to start evaluating yourself a little bit here. Because at some point, we've got to get past testing Jesus out and make a decision. Is this guy crazy? Is he a liar or is he who he says he is? It's what C.S. Lewis said. There's really the only three options with Jesus. Either he was crazy or he was a liar or he is who he says he was. And if he is who he says he was, he's not just a prophet that can look into a crystal ball and tell you what's going on in your life and how to get ready for your future and, and how to prepare for success. And he's not just a teacher who gives words of wisdom and guidance and direction. He's God in the flesh. He's the one at the end of the day who's going to welcome folks into the kingdom and invite them to that final banquet. I can't talk too much about that. That's a sermon coming down in a week or so here. But it's a meal in Luke. And and Jesus is the one who's, who's making the guest list. And if he is who he says he is, and we see him as God in the flesh, and we love him and honor him and respect him that way, then he gets to decide who's at the table and who's not. We don't. Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He didn't say to this woman, you followed, you finally gotten the rules right. Go in peace. He didn't say to this woman, you finally repented of your sins. Go in peace. He did say her sins are many. He acknowledged that. 
He didn't hide from that. He didn't pretend that she was something different than she was or a different. He, he saw her. He knew. He said her sins are many, but they've been forgiven. The passive in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, all, almost always points to God. When he says your sin, her sins have been forgiven, he's saying God has forgiven her sins. She's at the table. I know you didn't invite her, Simon, but this is my table, and she gets to be here. She's at the table, not because she's in the right group, not because she voted the right way, not because she got the right education, not because she's got the right skin color, not because she's got the right sexual orientation, not because she's married to the right person or going to the right school or makes the right amount. She's at the table because she's been forgiven. She's been forgiven. And that's the, yeah, you can clap for that. That's okay. That's the only way any of us get to the table. And her faith saved her because she believed it. And she believed Jesus. All I need is to be forgiven. I can't be perfect, but I can be forgiven. I can be forgiven. And she was so glad of that. So when you get invited to the table with Jesus and you come to the table and you see who's there and you go, holy And you start thinking, okay, if I turn around now, maybe no one saw me come in. I can just slip out the back and avoid an embarrassing situation because I cannot be with Jesus if he's with them. That was the problem Simon had. And the other Pharisees, they said, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's hanging out with these folks. He's touching them. He's letting them touch him. He can't be the Messiah He can't even be a prophet, not a prophet of God if he's doing this stuff. And I got to think, some of the sinner folks out there were going, well, Jesus, he's one of us. He parties with us. Ah, What do you mean he's at Simon's house? That dude? Well, if he's hanging out with Simon, I don't want anything to do with him. Judgment goes both ways. If Jesus is who he says he is, and you love him the way you say you love him, then whoever he's hanging with, you got to be okay with hanging with him. I got to be okay with hanging with him. I, I got, I, maybe this isn't God. Maybe this is just Scott. Maybe, maybe. But I got to think that the vast majority of the people who are out and not in the kingdom of heaven at the end of the day are going to be people who said, if they're in, I can't. I just can't. That can't be heaven. If they're there, it can't be heaven. Heaven must be. I got to keep looking. That can't be heaven. And Jesus, that guy can't be the Messiah. That can't be Jesus if he's letting those folks in. Whoever those folks are for you, one of them is going to be there. At least. Jesus wants us to see him. Luke wants us to see him. How do you see Jesus? Are you evaluating him? Is he living up to your standards of what's right and what's wrong? Is he hanging out with the people you think are good to hang out with? Or are you saying, everything now I evaluate on the basis of Jesus. And if Jesus says they're okay with him, they're now okay with me. What do you think about Jesus? final question is 
Do you see people? That's what Jesus wants us to be asking. Do you see people? Or do you just see categories? Now, we can't escape that. We can't escape it entirely. We see, you know, I'm not even sure it was possible in Jesus' day, but the number of people we see, you know, in person and on media is extraordinary. The pace of our lives, the number of contacts that we have in any given day or week or month or year is extraordinary. You're not going to be able to see everyone as a full person. But are you seeing diverse people as people? Are you being intentional about that? This is where microchurch comes in. I'm going to go just like a minute over. Tech people in the back and band people wherever you are. I'm getting close to wrapping up. I always forget to say that. Let me be clear. I'm getting close to wrapping up. <laughs> Do you see people? Microchurch, that's what microchurch is, an opportunity to make time and space in your life on a regular basis to sit down at table with diverse people and see them. And see them. Get to know them. Let them get to know you. Be vulnerable. It's not going to all happen on the first day. But give it some time and it will happen. I saw this with our, with our leadership training that we did with our microchurch leaders. The folks that are leading now have been doing microchurch now for a year. And many of them, some of them knew each other before they started. Many of them didn't know anybody else in the group before they started. And then like, like three months in, like a month after we started meeting face-to-face, once the, all the shelter in place, we could get together and start meeting face-to-face in people's houses. A month after that, I had a conversation and basically asking them, uh, you know, what, where's the place where you go now to, to really just connect with people? And almost all of them said, this is it. This microchurch place where I see him and her and her and him and these folks I didn't know and I wasn't a little, a little iffy about it at a time, but now... You're my people. You're my people. And I love you. I I told the leaders, I said, I I didn't want to overburden them. So I said, once the other micro church sites launch, we're not going to get together every week. That's just too much. We'll get together once a month by Zoom. And they said, we will get together twice a month face to face because I am not leaving these people. I'm not leaving these people. If you are struggling to connect with diverse people, with some of those folks that you put in the category of, if, they're with, if Jesus is with them, I really can't be with Jesus, or that really must not be Jesus, join a microchurch. Get to know some folks. Make some time and space to intentionally engage with folks who are different from you. And see people. Even if you don't join a microchurch, let this story sit in the back of your brain. And when you see stuff going on that you think, oh man, folks need to learn how to act. Maybe remember Jesus. Maybe learn to see people and practice it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.